0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Ada Limon, author of four poetry collections, including Lucky Wreck, This Big Fake World, Sharks in the River, and Bright Dead Things, which was nominated for a 2015 National Book Award. In addition to poetry, Limon writes nonfiction and essays. She lives in Kentucky and California. We started the interview talking about how readers should approach poetry.
1: It's sort of the way I would recommend people read anything, which is seek out what you love. And if that's one or two poems and you just want to read those over and over again, that's great. That'll probably lead you to something else. I think poets and other writers generally like to read a full book, but I don't think that's always necessary. I think anyone who has an attraction to the sound of things and how language works, can be drawn to poetry. And all they really need to do is read one poem at a time and let it sit. For me, I like to read one poem, kind of get up and walk around and think about it, and then come back and read another one. There are books that I read all the way through quickly because for some reason the thrust of the book of poems is really igniting my curiosity, and so I have to read it all the way through. Um, But then I go back and read it again and sort of savor it. Um, But poetry is really meant to be read out loud. Um, So if you can, just sit there and read it out loud to yourself or read it out loud to your dog. (laughs) That's what I would recommend.
0: As I read this collection, Bright Dead Things, I felt like I knew you. I I feel like I could say these things about your life that that you lived in New York and California and you've recently moved to Kentucky and you've recently found a healthy love that brought you mm-hmm. to Kentucky and that you like horses and birds and you've dealt with some serious death in your life recently and you're just trying to live a good life. And I don't mean like a moral life necessarily. Uh I just mean Uh a life where you feel like you've lived each day to the best of your ability that day. Is this accurate?
1: Yeah, I think that's very accurate. Because this book was probably my most honest and my most bare of poetry books. I kind of love that you know that about me by just reading it, you know?
0: Do you think about that, like how much you're exposing? And and obviously a poem contains a whole universe within it. So I might know that you love horses and now that you live in Kentucky, and I might know that you're co- very conscious of your own dying. But is that actually personal information?
1: Yeah, I don't know if it necessarily is. It's funny because I have friends who always think you are such a who know me well, say, oh, you're you're a very private person. And I think in some ways I am a private person, but when I write poetry, I always go to that private space to write. And so that's where I release that private self. So, yeah, I think that there is an interesting sort of dichotomy that happens when you're a poet. You know, you're both an introvert, and then you kind of have to turn on your extrovert as you go out and read and talk to people. And people will come up and say, "Oh, I know this about you," or you know, they feel this sort of connection, and you remember, "Oh, right, I wrote down all of these personal, private things in my life and put them out into the public." It is something you think about as a writer. I think for me, personally, this book I got really nervous about um, because it's so bare and so honest and so personal. Um, I was really hoping that people felt connected to it and didn't feel like I was somehow just sort of self-obsessed and um, (laughs) interested in just sharing secrets and less interested about the work. Um, Yeah, I was actually, I was kind of nervous about this book when I first put it out.
0: But do you think that good art or maybe just a good poem, something you're trying to capture is how you can maybe address the very personal intimate thoughts that you have yet they are somehow universal
1: i do i think what i was trying to get out for myself in this book i kept going for walks and asking myself what are you scared of what do you not want to say um what is the subject that you deem unpoetic for some reason And then I would go back to my desk and write that poem. And I think in doing that, I was hopefully giving the readers an idea of what we're all sort of struggling with and also giving readers permission (laughs) to think and talk and write about those subjects as well.
0: You know, sometimes when I read poetry, I get so inspired to write it. And I'm like, oh, I can do that. But then when I start, I realize it's like the captain of the plane has died. And all of a sudden, I've been asked to land it. (laughs) Do you ever have that experience where people not are necessarily dismissive of what you do, but they don't really understand how hard it is? Yes,
1: I do. I feel like there's uh, especially When you write about personal things or you're exploring grief, you know, I talk about the big ticket stuff, right? Love, death, (laughs) grief. And when you're exploring some of those universal topics, I think people think, oh, well, you know, I've lost someone in my life and I've gone through this, so I think I can write that and I have the same exact emotion or I feel this way. Um, So sometimes I do think that they, they don't necessarily dismiss it but feel like it comes very naturally and don't realize sort of the kind of courage and work and thought it takes to actually craft the poem so that it isn't just the thought, that it isn't just a diary entry, and that it's something that's reaching out and actually talking to another human being on the other side of the page, on the other side of the glass. And that's what I think Essentially, I'm most interested in this poetry that starts a conversation, and that it feels like it's talking to someone. I didn't want to write poetry that was full of obfuscation or felt like it was somehow opaque. So I really wanted people to be able to read it and connect with it and feel like there was someone talking to them.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. My guest is Ada Limon, author of four collections of poetry, including Bright Dead Things. Let's talk about the first poem, the poem that opens the book. It's called How to Triumph Like a Girl. Do you want to read it or read part of it and just talk about it? Sure.
1: This poem was written about the day before the Kentucky Derby which is the uh, Kentucky Oaks, which is when all of the Phillies race. And I always love it because it's sort of a day that all the, all the lady horses race. And um, it's also a really fun day in Louisville where all the locals come out as opposed to the sort of larger crowds for the Kentucky Derby. Um, and, of course, when I say this is what the poem is about um, – know that it's never quite about that. How to triumph like a girl. I like the lady horses best. How they make it all look easy. Like running 40 miles per hour is as fun as taking a nap or grass. I like their lady horse swagger after winning. Ears up, girls. Ears up. But mainly, let's be honest. I like that they're ladies, as if this big, dangerous animal is also a part of me, that somewhere inside the delicate skin of my body, there pumps an eight-pound female horse heart, giant with power, heavy with blood. Don't you want to believe it? Don't you want to lift my shirt and see the huge, beating, genius machine that thinks No, it knows it's going to come in first
0: and do you want to say anything else about this the process of writing it or was there anything about it that really stumped you or
1: sure for me this poem was exploring that notion of actually admitting that you want to win i was watching these horses there's this um really famous uh, filly named Zenyatta who just was so wonderful to watch win. And after she would win, she used to come from behind. She would come, you know, eight or ten lengths behind horses and then win just in this huge burst of energy. And she was just lovely. And I think I kind of was channeling her, but I also had this, what, what it was to actually admit, I want to win. Oh, no, I know I'm going to win. Right? That's not something we say as women very often. Um, And so I think that I really wanted to channel that energy and to know what it would be like to actually have that in your mouth, to have, I want to win in your mouth and feel what that would be like.
0: Can you talk a little bit about endings in general? You know, poems, I feel like they're such small vehicles. That every part matters, of course, the beginning, the middle. It's, you know, it's a whole sandwich and you need it all to taste good. But the Mm -hmm. ending is what people walk away with.
1: Yeah, I'm, people will tell you this, I am obsessed with endings. It's sort of what I, um, I look at all the time when I'm working with students or if I'm working with friends. I'm always looking at the ending. I think so much depends on it, right? It feels like what you, your last thing that you ring an audience member with, right? It's the last instrument. It's the last sound. It's what they're humming with afterwards. So I really feel like I work hard to land those endings in a way that I feel will reverberate and continue on with the reader. And sometimes that means not being dramatic and kind of pulling back, you know? Um, and sometimes it means sort of saying the thing all at once in that ending. Um, and it's always different, but I do think the ending, every, you know, everything's balanced on that, and it's a really key for a poem. And if you're, if you're reading, if you're, to me, if you have favorite poems, they always have this killer, killer
0: ending. I feel like the the frequency of a lot of poems they're this this conglomerate of of sound and you know the music of it as well as sometimes a narrative story sometimes less Mm -hmm. less story like but so much emotion in in poetry Mm -hmm. how do you make sure that you're not being manipulative in a poem versus honest and I would think that comes into play a lot in the endings, but you you can tell me.
1: Yeah, I think it's a fine line when you're really trying to be honest or really trying to be direct. And how that walks that fine line between being manipulative or using the facts of the situation to override the song and power of the poem, right? Like if you want to say something like, so-and-so died, right? That's a very, very heavy thing to put in a poem. And of course, immediately your audience is going to be attracted to it because it has a lot of emotional weight. But if the poem itself isn't balancing out with the other details and the lyricism and the beauty of the poem, it can't function as a whole. So I think for me, it's all about creating those balances so that the sound, the sonic portion of the poem, as well as the emotional life of the poem, are functioning as one. And that's always in my mind, is keeping that balance. So you're always trying to say the thing, but then at the same time, you're always bowing down to the poem first and foremost, so that the poem and the final song is always there.
0: So speaking of death, you did have a lot of poems in here about your stepmother's death. You went to witness it and help her. Um, There's some poems about that. And then there's a poem um, called What Remains Grows Ravenous. And for me, I was maybe most attracted to this because it wasn't just about her, but it brought up sort of the dichotomy of, of death and life because no one is perfect, and mm-hmm. while you're mourning the death of your stepmother, it seems like that she had done things that really hurt you in her life. Mm-hmm. Can you can you talk about that sort of relationship and trying to encapsulate it in a poem? Because I think so often the dead become perfect, and they're not.
1: That's very true in that poem, and also um, in the poem in a Mexican restaurant, I recall how much you upset me. Uh, I think when you're talking about death, and especially in poetry, I think sometimes we, we tend to rewrite the elegy, right? We eulogize, and we forget that these people have faults. And grieving and going through my the death of my stepmom, who was a wonderful person, but she was also a hard person, and, you know, you grow up together, uh, so I, I was I was also a hard child, I think, when we first met, um, but she was my stepmother for 26 years, and one of the things that's difficult about losing someone is that you also remember what it is to have issues with them, and that was part of your dialogue, that was part of who you were as a human being in the world, was that you remember being like, oh you know, she hurt me and she did this and we had this issue, we had this ongoing argument or whatever. And then when you lose them, first you remember all the beautiful things and the things that you're gonna miss. But then there's a part of you that remembers the hard part and you actually miss that miss that. You miss sort of reeling against them and you realize how much that is a part of you. So I think I was always in in this book and especially in those, a couple poems, with trying to get at what it is to remember someone fully and to also remember the hard parts about them.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. My guest is Ada Limon, author of four collections of poetry, including Bright Dead Things. So in the poems form, you have a poem in here. Um, it's on page ninety-three, called "To Post," and the lines basically are three words long. And then some of your other poems are in stanzas, or some are just like almost like like a paragraph um, with mm-hmm. with no line breaks, like "The Quiet Machine." How do you decide if a poem's going to be a sort of a long thin one or a short fat one?
1: Yeah, I think that's a great question. For me, the subject matter almost always dictates the form. You know, depending on what I'm writing, I kind of have a feel or a tug. The lines will tug me in one way or another. With the shorter lines, those are always sort of the quieter poems, those are poems that are more of the internal monologue. And the prose poems that are the poems that sort of look like the paragraph, even though those are the internal monologue as well, those tend to be reaching out a little bit more. They're more conversational. They're more interested in that conversation. And then if there's a midline length, those are more of the the dialogue. Those are more of the um, conversation between two people. Yeah, so I feel like the subject for me is always dictating the form and also the sound. For the poem call to post, you mentioned that almost all the lines are like three, three words long, and I wanted it slow. That slows the poem down, and I wanted to get that sense of someone standing alone, in quiet, in a quiet place. So even the grass smells like horses. So you know that really slows it down, which is like if you have something that's more of the the paragraph form, like in Prickly Pear and Fisticuff, my brother says he doesn't consider himself Latino anymore, and I understand what he means, right? So you read it really fast. So it really just, it always dictates the the pace of the poem. And so the line length for me is always kind of letting the reader kind of slow down, speed up, or kind of take a, a mid-range pace.
0: One of my favorite poems is called Oh, Please, Let It Be Lightning. And, again, it's about moving, and it's literally like in the car. You have a line in there that says, sometimes there seems to be a halfway point between where you've been and everywhere else, and we were there. Tell me about this poem as a narrative, writing it. Tell me about your thoughts about it.
1: Oh, Please Let It Be Lightning is a poem that actually someone had asked me to write a love poem for Project they were working on, and I, you know, I hadn't really written a lot of love poems. This was one of the first love poems that sort of became central to the book for me. It's interesting because it began with a story, and the story is in the poem. But my partner's mother, uh, we had just visited her, and she had told us a story that that his his great grandmother had either died in childbirth or was struck by lightning. And I thought, that's a pretty big difference, right? (laughs) This is a pretty big truth that that, the fact is either struck by lightning or died in childbirth. And I kind of was obsessed with this idea that those were the two options. And so that poem sort of started from there. And um, that's where the title came from. Oh, please, let it be lightning. (laughs) I wanted that to be the reason and then also i i used to write a lot of poems about cars in cars the passenger side i laugh that my my thesis could have been called the passenger side but uh, this poem for me was that idea of not knowing where you're going not having everything fixed and in place we didn't you know we didn't own anything we had just bought a car we didn't quite have funds for And not having anything figured out, I was freelance writing, so uh, working from home, luckily in Kentucky where it's cheap to live, and he was starting his own business, and we really didn't have any sort of set uh, idea of where we were going to be or what was going to happen next, and this poem is about being okay with that, which I think we all struggle with, at least I know I do. You know, we want to have this sort of answer, this sort of, this is it, our life is fixed and set. And we now own a house and we are married and we have children and, we, you know, all of these sort of things that life is and that can be. And I think this poem was being okay with the vagueness and the not knowing and the mystery. And just as long as you're doing it together, you can be okay with it.
0: Well, can you talk about sort of this idea that does run through a lot of your poems and I mentioned earlier this desire to be good and again I'm not talking about like morally good with a right and a wrong but to just this sense that you need to make the most of every day.
1: Yeah um, I think this the main thrust of this book for me and why it's called Bright Dead Things is this sense that we're all dying and that that knowledge of that shouldn't terrify us but rather let us recommit to the world more fully with eyes open and so that even when things are hard and terrible, we still are alive. We still have breath and how grateful we should be for that. And in some ways this book is for me, right? It's, it's, I wrote these poems so that I could get through what I was going through and, and hopefully live a life that was more committed to being grateful in those moments. And I think anyone who's experienced any sort of loss um, or anyone who's gone through a home death and seeing death up close and personal, anyone who's experienced that in their lives, can know how it can either turn you into a sort of despair where you feel like life is too much and too cruel or it can make you feel like, okay, I've got this limited time. We all have a limited time. How do we live with that? How do we how do we want to live with that if we know that our days are numbered? And we all they all are. So I think for me it was that idea of like, well, I wanna live the best that I can in every moment. I want to be joyful. I want to be experiencing it. I don't want to be numbing to it. And them. So I think this book is really about
0: that. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. My guest is Ada Limon, author of four collections of poetry, including Bright Dead Things. Can you share a passage from an author that really speaks to you and helped influence your writing?
1: Yeah. One of my favorite poems of all time. And a lot of people love this poem. But I, I read it when I was 15, and sort of around 15, lots of things were happening to me. I think most of us were experiencing a lot at 15, 15 17, right? Some big sort of momentous life changes where you start to become a full human being. <laughs> and I read this poem, One Art, by Elizabeth Bishop, and it was actually on a test. And this is how much I loved it. Like, I was on a test, and I, I wanted to take the test home with me because it was so beautiful. And if you don't mind, I'll read the I'll read the whole thing. It's One Art by Elizabeth Bishop. Now, the poem is a villanelle, so you'll hear these repetitions. The art of losing isn't hard to master. So many things seem filled with the intent to be lost that their loss is no disaster. Lose something every day, except the fluster of lost door keys the hour badly spent. The art of losing isn't hard to master. Then practice losing farther, losing faster. Places and names and where it was you meant to travel. None of these will bring disaster. I lost my mother's watch. And look, my last or next to last of three left houses went. The art of losing isn't hard to master. I lost two cities, a lovely ones, and vaster, some realms I owned. Two rivers, a continent, I miss them, but it wasn't a disaster. Even losing you, the joking voice, a gesture I love, my I shan't lies, it's evident. The art of losing's not too hard to master, though it may look like, write it like disaster. And this poem struck me so uh, to the core when I was 15, and it still strikes me. And we talked about endings before, and in that ending, you know, throughout the poem, she has bills where it's like, lose this, lose that. Everything's going to be fine. That's sort of the way that we human beings work, right? I lost this, and look, I'm fine. I lost this, I lost my watch, my mother's watch, I, and then she gets bigger. I lost two cities, lovely ones, and faster. Some realms I owned. Two rivers, a continent, right? So she's lost all those things and it's not a disaster. But then she gets to the very last stanza where it's even losing you. And that's where it gets so tough. I shan't have lied. It's evident the art of losing not too hard to master. Though it may look like and then she has this parenthetical statement, write it like disaster. And I think that statement, where she writes in those last lines, "write it," has been sort of emblazoned on my brain uh, as a mantra since I read this at fifteen.
0: Can you share something you wrote? Maybe it was something that was tricky to write or changed a lot for the first from the first draft.
1: I think a poem that I had. Uh, we actually kind of talked about it a little bit. Um, a poem about where I, it's called, In a Mexican Restaurant, I Recall How Much You Upset Me. Um, and this poem was difficult in the sense that my stepmother had been dead at this point for two years. And I had only ever spoken very highly of her. And she was a really wonderful woman um, who I this every day. Um, but in this poem, I started to try to remember some of the harder things. So it begins, um, tonight over casual conversation, words brought you up or out from where I keep you, and you were my stepmom again, and I was telling some of his family, my family now, how it was to have you as a mother figure all growing up. You, the keeper of lists. You, the flag and the moon and the moon. You, the garden and the grave. You, who I held as the last air left. And then you were what? What then? A body, where do we keep it? Oh, how how I don't offer enough. In one sentence, in a Mexican restaurant, you were alive and then dead again. And then we had a margarita. That can't be enough, can it? What do you want me to say? Sometimes you were mean. Sometimes I was angry. You left me when I was 15. You sent my dog to the pound. You hung up on my brother. But love is impossible. And it goes on despite the impossible. You're the muscle I cut from the bone. And still the bone remembers. Still at once. So much at once. The flesh back. The real thing. If only to rail against it if only to argue and fight, if only to miss a solvable absence. And that poem, I think, was really tough for me to write because I had to admit some of the harder things and some of the harder relationships that we had. Um, And you realize that sometimes you miss the fight. You know, you lose someone in your life that you argued with. Sometimes you miss that argument and you realize you can't fight with them anymore. And that idea of the solvable absence at the end was that I was able to argue and close the door and fly away and do my own thing and kind of puff and puff about our own issues. But it could always be solved by me returning or by her reaching out. You know, when someone's gone, that can't, that can't be the case anymore.
0: Where do you write?
1: I write primarily in two places. One is I have a little office in our home in Kentucky, in Lexington. I love it. It's my old kitchen table I had in Brooklyn for 12 years, so I feel like I'm bringing a bit of Brooklyn to my little office. Um, and it looks out on sort of an empty field and really this beautiful surroundings. Um, and then the other place I love to write is in the little apartment um, friends have given me in Sonoma, California, and I write at that kitchen table there. I also, you know, I take notes throughout the day. I sometimes, if I'm out on a walk, I'll take notes and put them on my phone. Or um, I write, on, I write uh, really well on planes. I feel like that's a great place to write. And I travel a lot, so it's good that I can write on a plane.
0: <laughs> what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: I I meditate every day and that's really helpful. I think as writers it's hard to stop writing, um, and sometimes it's hard to be present because all we're doing is recording the memory in the moment instead of experiencing it. So I'm always trying to experience it, the life fully, and then when I write, I write so that I'm not writing all the time. You can turn the brain off. So meditation helps. And also walking, you know, I, I walk the dogs, and so those walks are really important to me where I can kind of shut the brain off and not be writing.
0: And who do you show your work to first to get feedback?
1: I send almost every draft of my poem to my mom and my stepdad, Brady. They just give great feedback. I know it sounds strange that you would give it to your family members, but so it's true. Um, Brady is a writer, and he, uh, he just gives great feedback. And then my friend Jennifer L. Knox and Jason Schneiderman, who are both poets, they read every first draft as well and give give feedback.
0: And how have you dealt with rejection?
1: Oh, like every writer, rejection is terrible and sometimes devastating. Sometimes I deal with rejection by kind of, it kind of silences me where it's hard it's hard for me to write after it because I feel like I've somehow been, been told that I've Don't have permission to do what I'm doing. But I think over the years, I've learned to kind of accept it as part of the process and embrace it as part of the process. And sometimes they're right. You know, um, it's a fine line with rejection where you want, you know, the the instinct is to be like, okay, I'm just going to throw this away. And sometimes that is, should be the case. And sometimes it's like, oh no, they're wrong. This poem is really good. And you know, you have to have that conversation with yourself and that tough conversation sometimes can only really happen if the poem has been rejected. So I've um, I've really learned to embrace it as part of the process. But like most people it's still safe.
0: And what is your favorite word?
1: It's a tough one. I always say my two favorite F words are feminism and forgiveness. But I think uh, my favorite word changes all the time because I get a new obsession with a word. Um, I think I think lately it's been a resurrection, the idea of coming back from, from
0: flames. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Ada Limon, author of four poetry collections, including Bright Dead Things. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.